Welcome to the Jeffers Brief, only on Contra Radio Network. Hello again, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here on the Jeffers Brief. Welcome you to another fun fact-filled episode. Before we get started, though, <laughs> yes, we're going to do that. You know, our show is gaining steam across the country and around the world. For example, this week alone, New Mexico, which, by the way, I did have a chance to visit this uh, past summer down at Alamogordo, Trinity site. What a beautiful state. Absolutely gorgeous. And I got to tell you, I like the desert quite a bit. I really do. Between New Mexico and Arizona, I love the desert. I really do like it. And West Texas, for that matter. Followed by Florida, Utah, Utah, Iowa, Colorado. States we really have never been that big in are leading the pack this week. It's unbelievable. It really is. Um, New York. Yeah, I know. New York. Who would have guessed? Texas. My state of Illinois, Pennsylvania, Indiana, California. You poor bastards in California. There is not a week that goes by that I am so glad that I don't live there. I feel sorry for those of you that are trapped there and cannot get out. Idaho, another one. Another. Uh, uh, we used to be big there, then we dropped off, and then it came back. Michigan. Keep up the good fight in Michigan, my friends. Montana, Tennessee. Beautiful state, Tennessee. Through there a few times this summer. Ohio, again, a place we were never that big, we're there. Washington State, North Dakota, Nebraska, Maryland, Georgia. Never big in Georgia for some reason, but nonetheless, Massachusetts. The liberal state. Well, that's not true because, you know, Massachusetts is the eastern half of Massachusetts. That's the ultra-liberal. The western half is conservative, but there's not enough of them, so they always get outvoted. West Virginia, by God. Arizona. Minnesota. You poor bastards. You know, I'm going to put Minnesota with California. I feel sorry for you guys, too. North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma. Went through Oklahoma a few times this uh, summer. And I got to tell you, aside from their tollway system, I like Oklahoma quite a bit. Again, a beautiful state. Uh, New Jersey, Mississippi, very clean state Mississippi is. Kentucky, went through Kentucky, even stayed at uh, Cave City, Kentucky a few times uh, this summer. I like Cave City. Nice little place. Like the where it's located. Alabama. Spent a month in Alabama dealing with family members who just would not cooperate with the closing of my father-in-law's, my late father-in-law's estate. Met some good people in Alabama. Louisiana. Missouri. Oregon. Virginia. Wisconsin. Kansas. Went through Kansas, the Flint Hills in Kansas. I got to tell you, what a beautiful piece of country that is. And I would love to go back there and spend just a little bit more time. But you really can't because the way the, the road system is set up is there to protect 
the Flint Hills. Beautiful. And I did not place, I had no idea that place even existed. But anyways. And of course, at the bottom it was New Hampshire. Not a big deal. I'm just glad to have them here. I am. And then, of course, in uh, the world in general, uh, the, you know, planet-wise, you know, 87% of our listeners come from the United States, followed by the United Kingdom. Our neighbors to the north, Canada, was in Canada a few times a few years back. Nice people. Really enjoyed Canada. Ireland, Sweden, Norway, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, Romania, Singapore. I'd like to go to Singapore sometime. Spain, Australia, the Netherlands. The Netherlands, by the way, my friends, wow. They're, you know, they're, I think, if I'm looking at it, if I read the stats right, our listeners in the Netherlands put the Netherlands as the number one country. If I, if I, let me, let me check the stats here to be sure, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where it falls down to. Yeah. The Netherlands. Portugal. My daughter's going to Portugal probably next month. Spend some time there before coming home. Haven't seen her in about a year and a half. Puerto Rico, Malaysia, Chile, Guatemala, Croatia, Poland, India. All these. This is where we've got our downloads and listeners from. I want to say thank you for listening. Pass the word along to all. Now, in case you haven't noticed, it's been quiet. I only caught it this week. Um, Gracie Marie Turner over at the uh, was it, is it Washington? Yeah, the Washington Examiner magazine. Congress wants to put a price on your life. <laughs> And when you, and I got some commentary when I finish this, so you don't want to miss that. I mean, I have commentary throughout, but this one's dedicated. So while Democrats wrestle with the internal battles over their multi-trillion dollar social welfare bill, you know what, this country has so many safety nets for the lazy, I can't stand it. And of course, we got multi-trillion dollars just growing on trees around here. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is determined to push it forward with her drug pricing plan tucked inside. You're saying, what's wrong with that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Now, a big pay for comes from savings earned by imposing price controls on prescription drugs and Medicare. Democrats want to extract about $600 billion from the pharmaceutical industry over the next 10 years to help pay for their entitlement spending blowout. Now, the House bill, my friends, make this go away. I don't want to do this. Make that go away. There we go. The House bill would peg Medicare drug prices to lower prices in other developed nations and then extend them to the entire U.S. drug market. I think that's more than fair considering most of the drugs are manufactured, developed, researched here in the United States. We should be charging everyone else for our innovation. The Senate is considered a different rationing scheme based on price-controlled domestic programs. What they don't explain is that these programs mean government, not doctors, would decide which drugs seniors could or couldn't get. 
Experience in other countries proves that access to the newest and best drugs would plummet as agency bureaucrats exclude some drugs and limit access to others, prioritizing dollars over lives. For example, the United Kingdom, and you listeners there can verify this. The government starts by setting the monetary value of a year of perfect health at somewhere between $28,000 and $42,000 to decide whether to cover a new drug, and if so, who gets it. Government analysts estimate a treatment's value and how many quality life years a patient would get by taking the medicine. You know, only bureaucrats can come up with something that ridiculous. The mechanism is called quality, or in a Q-A-L-Y, and that's for quality adjusted life year. Now there is an organization that helps organize a series of focus groups this summer to assess what Americans think of this approach. Our research shows they find it chilling and even abhorrent. One of the first concerns was the potential for discrimination. What? Say it ain't so. The quality mechanism ascribes a lower value to those living with disabilities or chronic diseases. Unprompted focus group participants brought up the late physicist Stephen Hawking as an example of how diminishing the worth of a person's life based on disability is not just morally wrong, but it also fails to account for the contributions that person might make to society. Similarly, qualities put less value on those who are older. This means seniors might be denied treatments offered to younger or non-disabled people. One patient said, it's definitely wrong. They're playing God. It's not their place to determine who gets to live and who gets to die. Of course they do. Just ask them. Yeah, just what the world needs. More bureaucrats. And I need a freaking another hole in my head. Supporters of the measures currently before Congress do not explain to voters that the quality mechanism is a component of their proposal, which they advertise as allowing the government to negotiate prescription drug prices for Medicare. They don't explain they would be importing prices from countries that use this quality scheme. And it is a scheme. A hidden but essential feature of their government-determined drug rationing systems. Now, Senate Democrat leaders, sensing this could be a problem, have said they will create new mechanisms, great, more bureaucratic nonsense, to control prices and not rely on other countries' models. Some suggest copying the Veterans Health Administration complex web of price controls. But that would mean seniors would have access to only half of newer drugs compared to 74% in the private Medicare prescription drug plans today. See, government can't do anything right without fucking it up. And that's where we're going there. So deploying qualities or any similar rationing scheme is antithetical to our values and it is likely illegal. The Rehabilitation Act prohibits discrimination based on disability in all programs or activities conducted by the Department of Health and Human Services, including Medicare. The drug component of the Democrat spending bill endeavors to circumvent that law by stealthily importing foreign drug prices, thus importing foreign governments' pseudoscientific discriminatory rationing schemes. We should not stand for it. Oh yeah, they're not going to tell you that, but I have. Now, I said it's going to have commentary. Uh, 
intelligentsia. I am tired of listening to these elected people, these professional politicians. All they do is give away money out of our treasury. Whether it's giving money away to make people dependent on the government for their livelihood, or giving away the COVID-19 vaccine to countries around the world free of charge and sticking the U.S. taxpayers with this cost associated with it. The professional politicians have turned the people's house into the world's most influential auction house, where everything is for sale, where quid pro quo rules. And, it, and that goes down to the state houses to a certain extent as well. If you think about it, as soon as they are elected, they immediately begin raising money for their re-election bids. It matters not where the money comes from, whether illegal or legal. They do not care. They only care if they get caught taking illegal money, and then it's their mea culpas all over the place. But they do not change their behavior. From insider trading to outright bribes, quid pro quo. Congress has become the biggest auction house in the world. There is a reason... The Senate is called the Millionaire's Club. Harry Reid, when he first got into the Senate, was the poorest senator in the chamber. By the time he retired from his professional politician career, he was the richest. How does that happen, I wonder? How does that happen? They're auctioning off votes to the highest bidder. And where do you fit in? Well, I'm going to tell you. You only matter when it comes time for election. They come home and say just what you want to hear in the hopes that you will vote for them. Other than that, you matter not. Sure, they will answer your phone calls and emails and other inquiries, but in the end, you will rarely get a straight answer. They just tell you what they think you want to hear. And if you dare question their integrity, then they will ignore you and smear you. How dare you question them? They know better. Just ask them. They know what's right for your life. They know what is best for you. Then we have the IRS. This is a beauty too. They want to monitor your bank account. Well, they want to monitor any bank account that has a balance of $600. <laughs> you see, they have to come up with this scheme to steal more money from you. They say is to compare the bank accounts of the wealthy to their tax returns to ensure that it's really, uh, they're on the up and up. And they say they won't monitor taxpayers below that particular monetary threshold. We know that the government cannot help itself and will abuse the American taxpayer. They cannot help themselves they will go after people below that monetary threshold. They're going to do it. And if the government is caught violating their own law, well, they'll just ignore it. There'll be no prosecutions, no sanctions, nothing. They'll just keep going on. It will not end. And when it comes to the government grabbing money, nothing will get in their way. They are like a passel of pigs at the public funding trough. It's never enough. It isn't. Oh. All right. Preppers. If you're not a prepper, you need to be. 
I don't know how many different websites you have to go to and hear people talking about shortages on the shelf. How many times you got to tell you, now's the time to stock up. You're going to need it. On the other hand, I've had friends told me over the weekend, well, I had my birthday party over the weekend, and yes, I got wrecked. The wife said I was somewhere like 15 shots of Knob Creek whiskey. But I wouldn't know. I was busy puking in the dumpster twice before I left. Well, there was uh, the first time after I puked, I thought, boy, am I smart. I can go out and drink some more. And I kept on going. Well, by the second time, it was like, no, I'm not driving home. Somebody get me home. And they did. Wife took care of me. It was all weekend trying to recover. I don't drink that much anymore. But when I do, it's usually uh, whiskey. It's usually uh, something. Uh, Kentucky or Tennessee. Oh, well. Bourbon whiskey. All right. Uh, anyways. I have people at the mid-birthday party sit there and tell me. Well, I didn't see any shortages on the shelf. Well, then either you're not going to the store or you're not paying attention. I mean, I was there last week, and I told, and I told, I said, Mott's applesauce, not there. And that was on Jewel. Jewel Food Stores is owned by Albertsons, one of the largest food distributors in the country. No Mott's. It's like, and it was just Mott's. I'm thinking, well, it's not on sale. What is the story? Well, duh. There it is. So let's talk about something a bit more different here. Uh, Tom Marlowe uh, put out a piece, and I thought it's good, and I want to share with you because I think it's important that we talk about the U.S. power grid and its vulnerabilities. I have always said that electricity is the thin veneer of our society, and in many cases, our civilization. Because we face many problems and ongoing threats in America. But one of the most pervasive and most pressing threats to our power grid. It is difficult to understand just how important electricity is to our modern society. And most people are totally, completely unprepared for a sustained loss of electricity. Far from being a luxury that can turn on lights at the flick of a switch or animate all of our wondrous modern gadgetry, Electricity is now woven into the DNA of our society is quite literally the beating heart of commerce, communications, national defense, and more. It is terrible then to consider how old, decrepit, and increasingly vulnerable to disaster or attack the entire power grid is. But consider it we must. And a thorough understanding of the vulnerability of our national power grid and our attendant dependency on it is the first step towards insulating ourselves against a long-term or indefinite loss of that power. The consequences of such an event can barely put into words. Now we're going to talk to you about the assessment of the current status of the United States power grid, its vulnerabilities, the likely outcomes you'll be facing should a regional or nationwide grid down scenario occur. Get your pencil and papers out. You're going to, you're going to want to take notes. If I Say something that you find noteworthy, push the pause button, write it down, push the play button, continue. <clears throat> because electricity is essential for modern life and the continuation of services which we do pay for. 
Virtually everyone in the United States today, and indeed throughout much of the West, quite literally cannot imagine life without the reliable, constant presence of electricity. It is no overstatement to assert that our electrical grid is the single most important part of our nation's infrastructure. It is even more important than our telecommunications hubs, any financial industry, national defense, or transportation hub. This is because our electrical infrastructure is quite literally integral to the continued operation and sustainment of all other mentioned components of our society. If the electric grid goes down, many elements will cease working entirely until power is restored, and what few remain working will be severely degraded or limited in capability. The ongoing operation of our electrical grid is the keystone to modern life as we know it, and anything that threatens it threatens to start disastrous dominoes falling in rapid succession, ending in calamity. But in a strange sort of symbiosis, our electrical power grid is itself dependent on many other utilities and other parts of our infrastructure. Natural gas, oil, transportation, telecommunication systems are all vital to the ongoing upkeep and operation of the electrical grids from coast to coast. And if any of these systems are delayed or disruptive, it will start an already complex and tottering electrical grid to begin swaying and perhaps collapse. Aside from the big picture national infrastructure and societal initiatives, all of us little people are still entirely dependent on electricity for running our day-to-day -day lives. 99 times out of 100, electricity is what makes the lights come on to banish the darkness. We rely on electrical power to power our devices that keep us connected to the internet, receive radio signals, operate our televisions. It keeps our banks on functioning, be it at the teller counter or at the ATM. Electricity keeps grocery store shelves replenished and stock rooms receiving. We even need electricity to fill up our personal vehicles with gasoline or to recharge them directly in the case of all electric vehicles. Imagine all that, everything, ceasing in an instant and perhaps not coming back on for a very long time when it fails. Because when it fails, it will fail quickly and with ever-increasing rapidity. Now, despite its extraordinary importance to the preservation of life and society in the United States, our electrical system is frighteningly vulnerable, both from within and without. The actual components of our electrical system, the very equipment that allows it to operate and transmit electricity to facilities and homes, is old and outdated and getting older by the day. The layout of the system is also a major point of vulnerability being both obsolete and highly Byzantine in design in many regions. The principles of engineering used to construct and, con and connect it are also proven to be increasingly out of date compared with modern, better practices. In total, all these shortcomings add up to a nationwide grid that is by and large incredibly frail, fragile, and vulnerable to disruption, if not outright destruction. Aside from quality of life and production problems like high failure rates throughout the nation that just gets worse as time goes by, inefficient production and delivery of power and rising repair costs, we must also deal with maintenance and refits that grow increasingly expensive and complex, owing it to the slapdash, antiquated nature of the grid. So what does this mean in practical terms? It means our electrical grid, considered at local, regional, and national scales, is highly vulnerable 
to everything from natural disasters and direct action attacks to simple rough weather and seemingly minor incidents. All of them, as you will soon learn, are enough to trigger total blackouts over a shockingly wide area, potentially affecting millions or tens of millions of people to say nothing of other critical infrastructure. Like for example, you're in the ICU unit at the hospital, electricity goes out. Yeah, they might have a backup generator for electricity, but when that fuel runs out for that generator, eh, it's going to get dicey. So as the demand on the grid increases, funding for critical maintenance and protection decreases. It is not bad enough that the power grid is old, outmoded, and vulnerable to internal and external threats, along with the odd brush from bad weather or legitimate natural disasters. Further compounding the problem geometrically are the ever-increasing demands from society for electricity along with maintenance and upgrade budgets that are slashed and slashed again as the political football is kicked about or is otherwise rated as part and parcel of the graft that all of our elected officials engage in. That's right, the auction house, the federal auction house known as Congress. The government is also interested in converting every single one of its vehicles, at least those used in civic roles, to fully electrical power. The increasing funneling of taxpayer money to Tesla and other companies pioneering these technologies is proof enough of their commitment. Consumers, driven by counterfeit, ecologically conscious ideology, or from government mandates in various states, are likewise starting to buy into electric consumer vehicle technology. Constant attacks against reliable forms of major power production like coal, natural gas, oil, and especially nuclear power, in lieu of inefficient dead ends like solar and wind power, likewise, mean that demand is only going to go up, up, and up while production of electricity barely grows at all, goes stagnant, or even operates at a net loss due to ever-increasing inefficiency, as we have talked about. This means that the already overburdened vulnerability and inefficient power grid will be subjected to growing demands that can barely handle as is in ideal conditions. What do you think is going to happen to the power grid and the consumer's access to steady, reliable electricity when times are tough? Heat waves, direct action attacks, successful cyber warfare intrusions, major natural disasters, cosmic EMP events, and more all have the potential to completely capsize our power grid. Oh, but if power grid goes down for a long, long time, we will go back in our history about 150, 160 years. Oh yeah. Make sure you feed those horses, you're gonna need them. So make no mistake, there is going to be no nationwide initiative to revamp our power grid in any meaningful way. There will not be any money found to afford it in a significant overhaul or badly needed maintenance in many areas. Things are going to limp along like this for the foreseeable future. With everyone involved, happy to kick the can down the road or sweep the problem under the rug until such time as the inevitable happens and a total systems collapse occurs, which makes it more expensive then. Idiots. What is likely to be to be the instigating factor of our collapse? We have no shortage of possible offenders to look forward to. So let's look 
and maybe examine a selection of some of the biggest and most destructive, not to mention most costly, power grid failures of the 20th and 21st centuries. Now we're, get, we're going to talk a little bit about just a few of the major threats to our power grid. Though some of the entries on my list may seem minor, even trivial. They take on an entirely new significance when you consider that the U.S. power grid consists of more than 10,000 functioning power plants, nearly 20,000 electrical generators, and a combined 450,000 miles of distribution and transmission lines serviced by over 55,000 substations. This astonishingly massive, intricate, and interconnect interconnected network could be taken offline entirely, and I mean the whole thing taken offline. If just nine strategically chosen substations out of those 55,000 plus were taken down by force majeure or direct action. So let's think about this. First, let's talk about overload. We all take for granted that the electricity will be there when we plug in the appliance or flip the switch. Luckily, it is much of the time, but there's no endless fountainhead of electricity to supply all needs at all times. As hard as it is to imagine for lay people, that supply is decidedly finite. As demand increases, especially peak demand that arises as a result of changing conditions or unforeseen, unforeseen circumstances, operators of the electrical grid at large must begin making choices about where and when they will supply power. This involves a sort of shell game process by which power may be reduced or cut off in some areas and redirected to others. You can bet, you can bet, if you live in a, in a wealthy neighborhood or, yeah, wealthy, wealthy covers the political uh, puppets as well. They aren't going to cut off their power. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that, that won't happen. Middle class, low income, your electricity, you get to experience rolling brownouts, rolling blackouts. Am I correct, those people in California, my listeners? You suffered through it for at least two decades I can think of. So obviously, if you're one of the unfortunates left in the dark, that is bad enough. But the intricate nature of the power grid means that the very process of rerouting power entails a certain amount of risk as it is fraught with opportunities for error and then subsequent catastrophe. When power grid operators are forced to rob Peter in order to pay Paul, when it comes to supplying power to a hungry populace, it's only a matter of time before a confluence of circumstances and human error result in a cascading failure. So let's talk about it. Operator error. Naturally, we want to think that the people who very literally keep the lights on represent our best and brightest minds, and thankfully so much of the time this is true. The inescapable reality is that they are still, at best, human and prone to making mistakes, or at worst, barely qualified to be operating the milkshake machine at a greasy spoon diner. Human error and good old-fashioned incompetence have before and will again result in calamitous power grid failures. And I don't mean, I don't mean to say that flipping the switch uh, as when they should have pulled the lever B instead means a ruined parade or a Christmas tree lighting. I mean to say that monstrous blackouts affecting tens of millions can be a direct consequence of even a single procedural error such as the nature of electrical generation and continual power supply in America today, thanks to our problems, 
we have spent talking about this and outlining it. If you have layoffs, walkouts, worker shortages, and more affecting every facet of society thanks to a mysterious path, pathogen of unknown origin turning the world upside down, you can bet on rush replacements. Underqualified workers and endless overtime taking its toll on a power grid workforce very soon. When that occurs, lights out. How about an accident? Accidents, great and small, are another common cause of power outages. We've all been there. Windy days, stormy nights, and tree branches toppling into power lines, or even knocks over power poles themselves, resulting in a localized, hopefully, power outage. Localized. Bigger disasters, too, can have deleterious effects on our supply of electricity, everything from automobile plane crashes to industrial accidents, even mishaps at power generation facilities themselves. Any and all of these can plunge our society into darkness. But what you might not know is that even the most mundane of accidents could turn, could, could turn into gargantuan regional blackouts that last for days, weeks, or potentially even months with all the intended effects we have discussed. Something as simple as a branch topping from a tree onto a nearby power line could result in a sequence of events that knocks out power across multiple states for millions of people. And that's not a joke. Natural disaster. I mean, one of the most obvious pervasive cause of blackouts are natural disasters. Relatively small ones like tornadoes. Unpredictable ones like avalanches and wildfires, right, California? And massive regional scale catastrophes like Cat 5 hurricanes. Each and every one of them can result in widespread total systems damage to the power grid, and the aftermath of these events makes diagnostic and repair tasking considerably more difficult. In the case of the largest disaster, society as a whole in the affected areas can be completely ground to a halt. Even accessing the affected areas to begin to assess the level of damage can take weeks. Naturally, the loss of power in these areas complicates rescue and retrieval areas efforts in addition to other post-disaster initiatives. Some, dis some disasters don't even necessarily take place on our planet, but instead happen to it. Cosmic phenomena like solar systems, coronal mass ejections can project incredibly powerful electromagnetic energy across the gulf of space, potentially impacting the atmosphere of our, our planet and raising merry hell with all electronics, including the transmission lines and substations of the power grid itself. A particularly powerful event could quite literally fry the entirety of the grid in the blink of an eye, rolling us back to the Stone Age. Well, the most severe disasters can disable power for millions, even tens of millions across a regional area, and leave them in the dark for months on end. Now, I mentioned direct attack. Now, as mentioned above, our power grid is a network a colossal system comprised of millions and millions of components. Each of these components, seemingly barely significant in terms of the whole, is nonetheless vulnerable to direct attack by malicious entities or individuals in a, bewilder a bewildering number of ways. Hey, Banjo, Banjo. Uh, Banjo the Wonder Shepherd is here. Most of these uh, installations and components are completely, totally unguarded and practically cannot be protected except in the most rudimentary ways or in the case of the most sensitive or crucial installations. 
Now, just in the past couple of decades, we've seen small groups of individuals target substations with rifle fire, damaging transformers or other components, fuel tanks targeted with improvised explosive devices, power lines sabotaged, and so much more. The ubiquitous distributed nature of the power grid combined with their lack of protection means that simple human ingenuity is more than enough to inflict catastrophic damage on all but the most heavily defended or hardened components or installations. Frank, it's a small wonder that the U.S. has not been plunged into a lot, long night by a simple, easy-to-execute attack by an organized enemy. I mean, think about it. But then we have cyber warfare. By far the most, and, you know, don't, we saw what happened to the colonial pipeline with the ransomware. And it's the most insidious and increasingly one of the most likely threats to our power grid is that posed by cyber warfare efforts or individual cyber attacks. An incredibly complex topic made even more complicated by the patchwork nature of our electrical grid, ongoing efforts to research and bolster the cyber defense of our power grid have been going on since 2005. We have already seen what devastating computer viruses like Stux, like the Stuxnet worm can do to even critical infrastructure. One need look no further to what happened to the Iranian nuclear program for proof of that. By the way, Stuxnet, that's another, it's another topic. I won't go to it right now. Though that worm was not deployed against the United States, it takes no imagination at all to believe that similar cyber weapons are ready and waiting in their digital silos for deployment against the U.S. by our near-peer enemies, or worse yet, are already lurking out in cyberspace, primed to infect essential systems before being activated. Ongoing testing and red teaming of the United States' various electrical system has shown that electronic warfare efforts, including computer hacking and autonomous viral weapons, are capable of logging keystrokes, manipulating system status and various controls, and interfere with data monitoring and other essential ongoing tasks. A coordinated cyber attack could offline the American electrical grid almost instantly and by design or accident, cause calamitous coast-to-coast -coast damage. So let's talk about some of our uh, examples in the 20th and 21st century of regional power grid failures and incidents. We're not talking, I'm not talking about stuff that's not theoretical. History, even near history, furnishes us with many examples of just how bad and widespread power grid failures can be and gives us a grim estimator of just how bad the damage can be. The only thing theoretical for our purposes is just how long the next big one could last. So let's talk about the historical blackouts and their causes, and you'll have an accurate picture of what we're up against. What you'll be facing the next time something similar happens. The Great New England Blackout, 1965. This humongous blackout affected eight states throughout New England and resulted from human error Throwing through a, a, through a tragically tiny one. A cascade failure resulted from a technician set a protection mechanism in the wrong position. Five minutes of failing power later, more than 30 million citizens had no electricity at all. Today, this is a classic example of the societal effects of sustained widespread power outage. Some people are trapped in blackened skyscrapers or halted in subway trains deep underground. New York City did as New York City always does and immediately began looting and pillaging. 
Beleaguered police blunted the edge of the chaos but could not hardly contain the outbreak of crime. Then we have the New York City blackout 1977. I remember this one. Another big Apple blackout, this one caused by multiple lightning strikes that completely knocked out power to the vast majority of the New York City proper. Though not particularly catastrophic from a technical perspective, this blackout could not have occurred at a worse time. With socioeconomic tensions at an all-time high and the city already on the brink of paranoia from the ongoing Son of Sam murders, pandemonium erupted in the immediate aftermath of the blackout. So New York did what all New York always does, rioting, looting, arson, and murder are always on the menu in New York City and are all, and are all were being served by the cartload. Homes are broken into by the hundreds, thousands of stores are robbed or looted, and more than 1,000 instances of arson were committed, including more than a dozen multiple alarm call-outs. Every police structure that could hold prisoners was committed to doing so. Even though this blackout lasted a little more than a day, total damages were over a billion dollars. That was 1977. The West Coast blackout, 1982. This massive blackout, originating near Tracy, California, was a result of a simple accident. Freak high winds knocked one high-tension transmission tower into another, which subsequently toppled into another, creating a little domino effect of cascading failure. Worse came to worse when response teams bungled the initial procedures and compounded it with shoddy communications. Communities as far as Las Vegas, Nevada, were plunged into total darkness and had no idea why. <laughs> Ooh, orange juice. This blackout should serve as one of the best exa recent examples of how comparatively minor mishaps can be compounded by human error, improper procedure, and confusion. The Northeast blackout of 2003. In upstate Ohio, during August of 2003, transmission lines were already strenuously overloaded by high demand or contacted uh, by branches from overgrown trees and other vegetation. The transmission line tripped and went offline, normally a minor event. However, however, a malfunction with the notification alarm systems controlling software meant that the power, the power company operators were none the wiser at first. By the time they became aware of the situation, three more transmission lines were rendered offline and then things got really bad. The subsequent cascading electrical failure resulted in a massive blackout virtually unprecedented in its scope, impacting more than 45 million residents throughout the American uh, Midwest, Northeast, and portions of Southeast Canada. More than 250 power stations were put into power, uh, were put into failure states, and multiple major American cities, among them Cleveland, Detroit, New York, and plunged into darkness. The full restoration of power took more than a week. The Southwest blackout of 2011. This blackout, shockingly widespread in its scope, was the result of human error and resulted in a loss of power or interruption of power to more than two and a half million people in the American Southwest, predominantly in Southern California and Arizona. A technician made a grave mistake while working on a capacitor bank at a substation in Arizona, and the consequences were yet another cascading power failure. Airlines, schools, public resources, water, sewage, banks, and more are well affected with many being brought to a standstill. 
Though the outage lasted less than a day, this instance sharply illustrates how bad even the simplest of errors can be when dealing with our power grid. Hurricane Sandy, 2012. The landfall of Hurricane Sandy in October of 2012 knocked out power in 22 states and more than 8 million residents. You know why they didn't call Hurricane Sandy? The government called it Superstorm. Because if the government had labeled it a hurricane, many of the people in um, New York and New Jersey who had their houses destroyed or flooded or whatnot don't carry hurricane insurance. Wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been covered. There would have been problems. So they called it Superstorm. So, anyways. Uh, the landfall of Sandy in October 2012 knocked out power in 22 states and more than 8 million residents. The damage to regional power grid installations and facilities was nearly total and included destroyed terminals, flooded or submerged substations, and badly damaged power plants. As a direct consequence of grid damage from the storm, airline flights were canceled, aircraft were grounded, trains could not run, and public water and sewer systems catastrophically failed. In many places, the total loss of electricity, including reliable backup systems, meant that sewage actually contaminated drinking water supplies. Radio and cellular communications were likewise affected in the most badly hit areas, further hampering efforts to alleviate the problem. Now, this outage cost anywhere from an estimated 15 to $22 billion in damages and losses. Full restoration of electricity and services took months. Do you remember that? Some of you may remember this one, the California substation sniper attack in 2013. Early in the morning of April 16, 2013, multiple shooters using various rifles began shooting at and severely damaged 17 transformers at the Metcalf transmission substation in Coyote, California. These transformers were perforated by gunfire and leaked more than 50,000 gallons of oil before overheating. Prior to the direct attack, the gunman or others associated with them cut fiber optic telecom cables elsewhere. Though low-tech in nature, the attack was highly organized and professional in execution with the perpetrators going uncaught to this very day. Though mercifully, no cascading failure resulted from the attack, damage was substantial, totaling more than $15 million. Multiple experts consulted on the attack agreed that if conditions were slightly different, the impact on the electrical grid could have been massive. It remains one of the best examples of how easily and severely small organized teams could affect the power grid. The Arkansas grid attack in 2013. Coming just a scant few months after the attack on the substation in California, another coordinated series of uh, three attacks took place against substations and transformers in Cabot and Scott, Arkansas. The first attack sabotaged a support tower for a massive electrical line that resulted in being dropped into adjacent railroad tracks and severed after a passing train ran over them. Power to the, entire, to the entirety of Cabot, Arkansas was cut. A later direct attack on a substation in Scott, Arkansas caused more than $2 million in damage, but thankfully minimal disruption. These perpetrators were caught, but it again further illustrates the extreme vulnerability of even the most essential components in the transmission of electricity. Minimal planning with plenty of motivation and low-tech tools and weapons are more than capable of crippling the power grid in a local or regional area. How about the Arizona diesel supply bombing in 2014? 
Nogales, Arizona, June 2014. An incendiary IED was placed under a 50,000 gallon diesel storage tank serving a liquid fuel generator and, and a power station. Mercifully, the bomb failed to ignite and the diesel fuel, even though it functioned. This was a comparatively localized attack and had it gone off as planned, it would have instantly cut power completely to tens of thousands of people in the area. Well, look people, the conclusions are simple. The US power grid is a massive conglomeration of installations, equipment, and interconnected systems that are increasingly decrepit, poorly maintained, and frighteningly vulnerable to a variety of mishaps, accidents, disasters, and enemy action, including cyber warfare. And as time goes on, relatively minor incidents will cause bigger and bigger problems until eventually the whole system comes crumbling down. This is not a matter of if, but when. It's going to happen. Our so-called leaders are more interested in auctioning off their votes for money. You know, it occurs to me, let me go back. You know, it occurs to me, you know, Congress wants to sit there and they want to sit there and renegotiate Medicare prices. You know what? No. I got a better idea and it will never happen. Because the professional politicians will never, ever, ever, those con men, those con women, will never, ever do it. You want to fix healthcare system? Get rid of the government, the congressional health care plans. Get rid of them. Make them go and do and buy and have available the same crappy options that we, the people, you know, they forget. They work for us. And they don't like being reminded of that. They hate that. They like being, ah, yes, you're a senator. Let me kiss your toes. Yes. Yes, I'll suck your big toe, yes. No. They work for us, and they forget that every term. Well, we're special. We should have a special health care plan. You know what? No, you shouldn't. You know, they pass. Government should have to live. Government and I mean the bureaucrats and elected officials, should have to live with the same crap that they foist upon us. But as long as we have the auction house running, guess what? It's not going to happen. I'm not foolish enough to believe that. But if you really want to fix what's wrong with the healthcare system, make those people, the elected people, Give them the same options that they've given us. You want to see shit get fixed real fast? You'd be surprised how fast it will. Don't get me wrong. The auction house will still run, but it won't be nearly as, you know, it is what it is. All right. Uh. What's that? No, that's stupid as hell. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, what do we got there? Colorado Teachers Union seeks to tighten grip on Denver schools. Don't let that happen, guys. 
Oh well. Anyways, that's what I've got for this week. How? Oh, and how? How do I fix that? Well, electric grid. Get a generator. Get your own household generator. Get a solar power. They can't cut that off. At least, yeah, I don't think they could. Might be expensive. I think it's coming down in price-wise where you could probably buy it piecemeal, bit by bit. But you never know. Electricity. It is what it is, baby. And it is essential to our well-being. Not only as a country, but as, human, but as humans. So, all right. Hope you enjoyed the show. Tell your friends and family. And don't forget, uh, Dave Kirshner's Lightning Round. I suggest you listen to that. You'll like that one, I think. Uh, my buddy, uh, Anthony Williams, on the Independent Mouth. He's always good for a couple of chuckles. I like Anthony, and I like uh, Dave Kirshner quite a bit. And, of course, Mark Boyle on the Prepper Guy. Uh, he just got banned from uh, YouTube. Uh, I told him it was going to happen eventually. That they caught up to him. No, they did. It makes no difference because he can still put his shows right here on CRN, Contra Radio Network. All right, until next time, be good, prep today, live tomorrow, quit screwing around with it, get yourself stocked up. Shortages are coming. You've been warned. Forewarned is forearmed. See you next week.